Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, as we are going through uh, the New Testament, we'll be covering verses 8 through 23 this morning. And it's all about right thinking. Right thinking versus stinking thinking. Because I think we do a lot of that, you know, we, we get down on something or someone or we go through a dark time of difficulty and we start just thinking wrong, just thinking bad thoughts, negative thoughts, hopeless thoughts. And Paul's going to show us here, teach us how to think right. And again, the Word of God has everything that we need in life for thinking, for living, for all that we do. Paul here now, as we come to this section of the scripture, Paul now comes to the end of his teaching on spiritual endurance. And the principle that he's about to give us sums up everything that he's already said. And it's the key to applying them. And again, principles don't do us much good if we don't apply them. You know, it's like learning something that's really good for us and will it help us in life, but we don't apply it. Let's begin now with verse 8, chapter 4. And Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And I would encourage you to underline the word these because it tells you what these things are in the, in, the, in the sentences above. Right thinking is what Paul starts off with verse 8. Right thinking. What we put into our minds determines what will come out of our mouths and also in our actions. Paul tells us to program, program our minds by meditating on these things. These things that he mentioned in verse 8. Spiritual endurance depends on how a person thinks. Now, when he says, think on these things or meditate upon these things, that, that's a command. He said, again, meditate upon these things. And then he says, again, that, that we are to think on these things. So when he, when he tells us, like, it's a command. He's not suggesting. He's not recommending. He's, he's telling us to do it because it will change a lot of things in our lives. So, again, spiritual endurance depends on how a person thinks. And like I said, this is a command. Right thinking is not an option in the Christian life. We're to do more than just casually think about things. We're, we're supposed to determine how important the things are we think about. We're to weigh out the things that we think. We're to solve or figure out the meaning of things. So Paul wants us to determine the importance of the things that he mentions here and to meditate on what they mean for the believer. The believer is to discipline his mind, his or her mind, to keep their mind on these spiritual values. And the Bible tells us uh, that how we think is how we live. It teaches us that how we think is how we live. Solomon said in Proverbs 23, 7, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. What goes into your mind comes out in your life. 
Mark 7, verses 20 through 23. In Mark, 7, in Mark 14, verse 72, and you know the story, it's when Jesus told Peter, warned him that, you know, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. Well, it says in Mark 14, 72, a second time the rooster crowed. It says, then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And it says, when Peter thought about it, he wept. You see, when he thought about it, he wept. Because your feelings are directly associated to your thoughts. Paul is calling for some serious biblical thinking. And today, you know... We're taught to follow our emotions. We're told to take a realistic approach to our problems. You know, when you say you're a Christian and you believe the Scriptures and you have faith in the Word of God and what it tells you, people roll your eyes. I'm sorry, people roll their eyes when you tell them that you take the Bible seriously. They ridicule you. They say, come on, get real. It's an old book. Written a long time ago in a different time. Now this is the 21st century. Well, the word of God is just as, as valuable and right on today as it was the day it was first penned. People are only interested in will it work? Or what makes me feel good? And today it's all about feeling good. And this thinking has gotten into the church as well. Understand that feelings cloud your judgment. I can be happy and just having a great time today and wake up tomorrow in a bad mood. And I used to do it quite often. But nothing in between has, has happened to change my feelings. Don't let feelings make, don't let emotions make decisions for you. Feelings have no rational foundations. A person can create your feelings. They look at you cross-eyed and you get all bent out of shape. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 165, Great peace have those who love your law. Speaking of his word. Great peace have those who love your law. And nothing, notice, nothing causes them to stumble. In other words, those who love God's word nothing can cause them to stumble. Your peace and your joy in the Lord is not dependent upon other people's attitudes or behaviors. God wants His people to think. He wants us to think. That's why He's given us a brain. Isaiah said in Isaiah 1.18, when it talked about salvation, He said, come now and let us reason together. God says, I will make your sins as white as snow. And you will eat of the fruit of the land. But if not, eternal hell will be your, de your destiny. And so he's saying, come on, let's reason together. It shouldn't be really a, a something that, that hard to decide. Think first. Think first and then make your choices based on the evidence that you see. Again, in their schools today, our, our young children, even in the colleges... Our modern education system emphasizes feelings. And look at these colleges moving all kinds of, of things that, that are causing people's feelings to get hurt. 
They're teaching self-esteem over critical thinking and reasoning. God told us that his thoughts in his book, and he commands and expects us uh, to use our brains to understand what it says. He's told us what he thinks in the word of God. And he commands us and expects us to use our brains and understand what it says. You know, believers have, to be, believers have to discipline their minds to think about right spiritual realities. And in this short list here, in verse 8, Paul names eight godly qualities to program our minds with. Someone called these, these, these things here that Paul said to think about in verse 8, somebody called this the, uh, the, the shortest biography of Christ. Paul said, whatever things are true... Jesus Christ is the one who is true. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Paul said, whatever things are noble, that is honorable, worthy of respect, well, Jesus Christ is noble. He is worthy of respect and honor. Paul said to think upon those things that are just. Well, he's the just one. Jesus is the just one. Then Paul said, whatever things are pure. Jesus Christ is the only pure individual who ever walked this earth. He was asked the question, which, uh, again, he asked the question of those around him, which one of you convicts me of sin? Nobody, nobody could, because Jesus was sinless. But Satan can always find something in me and say, see, look how short he falls. But there was nothing in the Lord Jesus Christ that was sinful. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Paul went on to say in verse 8, whatever things are lovely. This means attractive and beautiful and gracious. Whatever things are of good report means worth talking about. Whatever's appealing. He said, what has virtue? Virtue has to do with strength and courage. He was the one. He was the one of courage. He was a real man. Jesus took upon himself our humanity. And then Paul said, if there's anything praiseworthy, think upon these things. He's the one that you can praise and worship today. And Paul said, meditate on what is true. This means reading, dissecting, and meditating the word on, the, on the word of God. The rest of the qualities are all based on God's truth. All of them are ways to look at the truths of God's Word. Believers are not to think about things that are pretty, I'm sorry, petty, temporal, ordinary, and worldly, but on what's heavenly and so worthy of praise and adoration. All that's true in God's Word is noble. Paul said in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things, on things above and not the things on earth. He said in Colossians 3, 1, seeking those things that are above. This means doing your best to put the priorities of heaven into daily practice. Jesus said, seeking first the kingdom of God. Again, Paul said, setting your mind on things above. This means being heavenly minded. It means focusing on the, on the eternal instead of the temporal. And he said, meditate on whatever things are just or righteous. That is, whatever is in line with God's perfect eternal will. His unchanging standards 
as we learn from the scripture, again, is his perfect will. Believers are to think on these things, things that are consistent with God's word. And then meditate on whatever things are pure. Pure. Pure describes what God in Scripture defines as holy, morally clean, and undefiled. In other words, free from sin. Meditate on things whatever are free from sin. Believers are to purify themselves because Jesus is pure. And Paul said, meditate on whatever things are lovely, that is sweet, gracious, generous, or patient. Believers must focus their thoughts on what the Bible says is pleasing, attractive, and pleasing to God. And then meditate on whatever things are of good report. This describes what's well thought of. Believers' thoughts are raised higher by Scripture to focus on higher subjects. And then to wrap it up, Paul exhorts, If there is any virtue and if there, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So if you have problems with impure thoughts, take a look at what you're putting into your mind. It can be through TV. It can be through the books that you read, the conversations that you have, movies you go to see, magazines, music, and so on. And replace bad input with healthy things. More than anything else, read the Bible and pray. And ask God to help you focus your mind on what's good and what's pure. And it takes practice and it takes discipline, but it can be done. The key to godly living is thinking godly. Proverbs 4.23, Solomon said, Keep your heart, the word keep means guard. You shall guard your heart with all diligence because out of it, that is your heart, spring the issues of life. What's in your heart is going to be seen in your life. Right thinking will be the result of daily meditation on God's word. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 7, 23, or 7 uh, through 23. Jesus said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, notice, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, bride, uh, pride, foolishness. He said, all these things come from within and defile a man. These things come from within, Jesus said. <clears throat> You're not wicked because of what happened to you on the outside. You're wicked because of who you are on the inside. Verse 9, Paul wants to talk about right living. Verse 8 was right, <clears throat> was right thinking. <clears throat> Verse 9 is right living. He says, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and notice, and the God of peace will be with you. A deacon said to his pastor one time, <clears throat> regarding a possible board member, the pastor said, the trouble with him is that he's a thermometer and not a thermostat. A thermometer doesn't change anything around it. It just registers the temperature. It's always going up and down. But a thermostat regulates the surroundings and changes them when they need to be changed. 
So the pastor said of this potential deacon, he's a thermometer. He lacks the power to change things. Instead, they change him. Paul was a thermostat. Instead of having spiritual ups and downs, as, he, as his circumstances changed, he was steadfast, immovable, steady as she goes. That was Paul's stability. He served the Lord doing the work of the Lord that God called him to. Unwavering. When he started talking about himself at the end of the letter, he shows us that he wasn't the victim of his circumstances. He was the victor of them. Paul says in verse 11, I have learned. It's a key word there. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Verse 13, he said, I can do all things. Can do all things. In Philippians 4.18, he says, I have all things. So I've learned how to be content. I can do all things. I have all things. You see, Paul didn't have to be baby to be content. The Apostle Paul found his contentment in the spiritual resources abundantly provided by Christ. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I came to give life and that life more abundant. Are you living the abundant life today? Contentment is not satisfaction. Nor is it a false peace based on ignorance. The complacent believer is not concerned about others while the contented Christian wants to share his blessing with others. Contentment is an escape from the battle. Contentment is a continuing peace and confidence in the middle of the battle. Paul said in verse 11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. Two words in verse 11 are very important. Verse, the, uh, the word learned and the word content. Underline them. Learned means learned by experience. Paul's, Paul's spiritual contentment wasn't something he had right after he was saved. He had to go through a lot of difficult, difficult experiences in life in order to learn how to be content. And you see, that's how we as Christians learn to be content. It's through difficult times. When we first got saved, you know, God kind of, um, looking back at my own, lets you enjoy the, the salvation that you've just received. And I remember growing up in the 60s with the Jesus movement. You know, we were excited. We were going to church and, you know, First Calvary Chapel, West Covina, down there, you had to wait in line. You had to stay outside for half an hour before the doors opened. People were so excited to get in and hear about Jesus. And we were just wanting to share with them. It was just wonderful. It was just an exciting time. It's like, oh, man, this is never going to end. Well, you know, all of a sudden, then, you know, as you're, getting, you're, you're growing, you start to experience difficulties now. We've had the, we've had the honeymoon. Now it's time to, to learn the lessons. Jesus now wants to move us up in our, in our maturity. And he allows us to start going through things, difficulties, you know, problems and, and, and things that, that you know, uh, now, now, now what do I do? How, how do I get through this? How do I, I fix this? And so we do it by going through these experiences and learning Learning the God that we've gotten, that, that has saved us. Now we learn about the things that the Bible says on how to deal with problems, how to, you know, be strengthened and encouraged and, 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 and last and endure. That's how we learn these things. So Paul's spiritual contentment wasn't something like ours that we, we, 
we got right after we got saved. We had to experience it. We, we had to go through those things to learn in order how to be content. The word content means contained. All right? It describes the person whose resources are within him or her so that they don't have to depend on substitutes from the outside. You know, a lot of people, when they start going through difficulty, they look to, to you know, uh, alcohol or drugs or, you know, um, relationships or, or whatever it might be, a new job, whatever it might be. But it comes from, from the, the resources within. The Greek word means self-sufficient. Contained means self-sufficient. But the Christian isn't sufficient in himself. He's sufficient in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus lives in us. And in Colossians, Paul said, we are complete in Him, needing nothing. And Paul gives us three great spiritual resources that make us adequate and gives us contentment. Contentment is a quality that a lot of people want, but it's hard to get. And even though it only comes from being in a right relationship with God and trusting in His sovereign, loving, purposeful, uh, purposeful providence, people still look for it in things and places. Things and places where it can't be found. Many look for that contentment in money, possessions, power, prestige, relationships, jobs, freedom from problems. But if that's where you're looking, forget it. Contentment is impossible because in this fallen world, it's impossible to be totally free from problems. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah gives an invitation to abundant life from God. It says, Everyone who thirsts, come to, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. He says, why do you spend money on what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, God says, and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. God says many people are not content because they're looking for their contentment in all the wrong places. Listen to this great difference to the world's understanding of contentment in this simple definition of spiritual contentment written by the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. He said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Paul said, now, now godliness with contentment, that's great gain. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. See, this is the key to spiritual growth and stability and personal contentment. We should honor God and focus our desires on Him, and we should be content with what God is doing in our lives. It also helps to know the difference between needs and wants, because we got a lot of wants. We want this, we want that. We may have all that we need to live, 
But you see, we let ourselves become anxious and discontented over the things that we want. We can choose to be content like Paul without having everything that we want. The only other option is to be a slave to our desires. You'll be, con- you'll be content when you stop wanting what you don't have. Look at verse 10. Now this speaks of the providence of God. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. We live today, as we all know, in a high-tech age where science proves all things. Science is the God of the world today. Science is the God today. We hear less and less about the providence of God, about God intervening, about God taking care of us, about God doing this and God doing that. If it can't be proved by science, it doesn't exist or it's not real. We've been led to believe by some people that the world is just out there spinning around, doing its thing, and even God himself can't change or stop the world. And the Bible says that all of the planets, the whole galaxy is, is held together by his word. But God's word clearly teaches about the providence of God at work in nature and in people's lives. The word providence comes from two Latin words. Pro, meaning before, and video, meaning to see. God sees before. God's providence simply means that God sees it in advance. It doesn't mean that God simply knows in advance because providence involves a lot more than that. You see, it's God working in advance to arrange circumstances and situations to fulfill His purposes. So He's working in advance way before, you know, we go through anything that we experience. And one of the best pictures of the providence of God is probably the story of Joseph and his brothers. Remember, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. They even hated him and they wanted to murder him. But they sold him as a slave when he was only 17 years old. He was taken to Egypt where God told him seven years of famine were coming. After that seven years of famine, there were going to be seven years of abundance. And it was through Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams that this was found out. Because of that, Joseph was promoted to second in command of Egypt. And after 20 years of separation from his brothers, he was reunited with them, and they, re- they realized what God had done. Because Joseph said, God sent me before you to preserve life. The brothers said, hey, you know, but, and, but Joseph said about his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph said, hey, you know, all of that that happened way back when you were mad at me and hated me and wanted to get, and you sold me. You know what? God, you didn't, you know, the, the Egyptian traffickers didn't bring me to Egypt. God sent me here for the very reason that 20 years later you would come here needing to have food to live. God sent me before you to preserve life. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is the providence of God. It's his hand ruling and overruling in the affairs of life. 
Paul experienced this divine providence in his life and ministry. That's why Paul could say, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Can there be a tragedy in a Christian's life? Think about it. When he divines and arranges and prepares all things, Life isn't just a combination of random events. They're appointments. Psalm 32, 8, I will guide you with my eye. So if God guides me with his eyes, how can, there, and how can what happens to me be a random act? God guides me. He leads me. This is the providence of God, a wonderful source of contentment. Verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak in regard, of, regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, this world really does encourage you to be unhappy with your life. You know, don't, don't, be ha- don't be happy with your job. Don't be happy with your career. You should have better. You should do better. Don't be happy with the money you make at your job. Don't be happy in your marriage. There's better out there. Don't be happy with the car that you drive. We're constantly bombarded with newer and better things that will supposedly make our life better and more fulfilling. If. If only we could get those things. If you listen to this world and its views, you will always be comparing the lifestyles and possessions of others with your own and you will always be dissatisfied. And if your contentment comes from your possessions, the things that you own and the activities that you, that you do, whatever they are, or there are other people These can be changed or lost in a moment. If your contentment comes from your relationship with Jesus Christ, there's nothing, there's nothing that can take that away. Paul had enjoyed a power and prominence among his people. He had also spent time in prison. He was also put in stocks in the depths of a jail cell. He'd stood before a king and he'd been stoned almost to death by an angry mob. Paul had enjoyed the benefits of the pleasures of life, and yet he could give them all up and still rejoice in the Lord. You know why? His contentment didn't depend upon his environment. It didn't depend on what he had or didn't have. It depended upon his relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, contentment frees you to enjoy every good thing that God has given you. Contentment shows your belief that God loves you and has his best interest, has your best interest in mind. This contentment stems from the sin of ungratefulness and a lack of faith. A lack of faith that God loves you enough to provide for all that you need. A Mr. Greenhorn said, They never felt God's love or tasted forgiveness of sins who are discontented. Those who are discontented, 
don't understand the love of God or the forgiveness of sins. Make every effort to be thankful for all that God has given you. A grateful heart doesn't have any room for envy. Paul said in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul let his friends know right away that he's not complaining. His happiness doesn't depend on circumstances or things. His joy comes from someplace deeper, something other than prosperity or poverty. Listen to Ecclesiastes 7.14 and, and, and remember it well. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Well, that's easy. I can rejoice when I'm prospering. He said, but in the day of adversity, consider surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. What? God appoints poverty for me? He appoints adversity for me? Yeah. That's how you learn to be content. That's how you learn to look to God. That's how we learn and we grow in maturity in our Christian relationship with God. I'll read it to you from the New Living Translation. Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God and remember that nothing in this life is certain. Isn't that the truth? Most of us have learned how to be abased because when we have difficulties, we run to the Lord right away. But not, but, but not that, that many have learned how to abound. Most of us have learned how to be abased because when we have difficulties, we run to the Lord right away. Prosperity does more harm to believers than adversity. Because the church of Philadelphia, this is what Jesus said about the church of Philadelphia. This is their thinking. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Notice that. And when we're doing well, we don't feel like we need anybody or anything. I don't need God. I don't need this. You know, and, we, and, and then God, you know, we, we, that's the way people begin to backslide. I quit reading. I, I quit praying. I don't look to God. Hey, I got everything that I need. I'm doing well. And then when it starts going downhill, that's when we get back on our knees. We start looking to God. You know, it, it, many times we treat him like a genie in the bottle. And we rub it to get what we want. Oh, Lord, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in need. The word learned in verse 12 isn't the same as the word learned in verse 11. Learned here means initiated into the secret. This word was used by the pagan religion referred to, uh, to, to, referring to their inner secrets. But through trial and testing, Paul was initiated into the wonderful secret of contentment in spite of poverty or prosperity. And he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, it was the power of Christ in him that gave him spiritual contentment. Matthew Henry said this. You know how we often say, I can't, I can't, I can't. Matthew Henry said, I can't is not a biblical concept. When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I'm a believer and Christ is in me and God is my God and he's taking care of me, why can't I do what needs to be done? Because he's my strength. He's my power. He's my ability. 
Matthew Henry said, Many of our cants are only the language of idleness which magnifies every difficulty and danger. Paul was content because he could see life through God's eyes. He focused on what he, what he was supposed to do, not what he felt he, he should have. Paul had his priorities straight. Paul was thankful for everything that God had given him. Paul had separated himself from the non-essentials so that he could concentrate on the eternal. A lot of times wanting more or better things is really a need to feel an empty place in a person's life. What are you drawn to when you feel empty inside? How can you find true contentment? The answer lies in your perspective, your priorities, and your source of power. The overruling providence of God and the unfailing power of God are two spiritual resources that we can draw from so that we can be all that we need to be for the tasks of life. But there's one more. The unchanging promise of God. Look at verses 14 through 19. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel... When I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Now, uh, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all that, that indeed I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Aphroditus, Epaphroditus, the things uh, sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. This is verses speak of the unchanging promise of God. Paul thanks the Philippian church for their generous gift. He wants them to know that he appreciates their gift. He says, you have done well that you shared in my distress. This is a personal thank you from Paul. And he compares their giving to three familiar things. In verse 10, a budding tree. The word flourished is the picture of a flower or or tree budding or blossoming. We often go through spiritual winters, but then spring comes and it brings new life and new blessing. The tree itself isn't uprooted and replanted somewhere else. The circumstances are changed. The difference is the new life within and then he compares it to, a, to a, an investment in verses 14 through 17. Paul looked at their missionary gift to him like an investment that would pay rich dividends, uh, rich spiritual dividends. He said in verse 14, the word shared is a familiar word, our familiar word, fellowship. The church, enter, uh, the church entered into an arrangement of giving and receiving. The church gave materially to Paul and they received spiritual blessings from the Lord. You see, the Lord keeps records and he'll never fail to pay one spiritual dividend. A church is poor if they don't share materially with others. And the third thing he compared them to in verse 18 is a sacrifice. They're giving a sacrifice. Paul looked at their gift as a spiritual sacrifice laid on the altar for God's glory. We're to give our bodies as spiritual sacrifices, Paul said in Romans 12. Also, the praise of our lips is to be a sacrifice of words, Hebrews 13. 
Good works are a sacrifice to the Lord, and so are those that were privileged to win to Jesus. Here Paul sees the Philippian believers as priests, giving their offering as a sacrifice to the Lord. But Paul doesn't see this gift as just coming from Philippi. He sees it as his supply. Sees it, 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 he sees it as the supply of his need from heaven. Though it came from the Philippians, it was given to the Philippians through the Lord. The Lord gave him what he needed through the Philippians. Verse 18 and 19 could be translated like this. You met my need, and God's going to meet your need. You met one need that I have, but my God will meet all of your needs. You gave out of your poverty, but God will supply your needs out of his riches in glory. You see, God has not promised to supply all of our greeds. When you're in God's will and you're serving for the glory of God, then you'll have every need met. Hudson Taylor often said, when God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will not lack for God's supply. The psalmist said in Psalm 34.10, those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. The psalmist, David, in Psalm 23 Verse 1 said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not need. When he's your shepherd, you won't lack what you need. A young pastor came to a church one time that was used to raising its annual budget by having bazaars and suppers and fundraisers and all those things to try to raise money. He told his officers he couldn't agree with their program. So he, he suggested, let's pray, let's ask God to meet every need. And at the end of the month, let's pay all of the bills and we'll leave my salary till the last. If there's not enough money for my salary, then I'm the one who suffers and not the church. But I don't think anybody's going to suffer. The officers were sure that the pastor and the church would die without having these bazaars and these bake sales and whatever. But that wasn't the case. Each month, every bill was paid. And at the end of the year, there was a surplus in the treasury for the first time in many years. It's God's church. He started it, and he'll finish it. And he, if he starts it and, and, it's, and it dies, Pastor Chuck said, let it die. It's his church. If he wants to do something different, he wants to start something new, let him do what he wants to do. See how much pressure that takes off of you and I, and especially the pastor? Okay, we're, you've never heard in 20-some years here, if you've been here that long, us ever say, bills are expensive this month, you guys, so let's, let's cough it up. <laughs> or dig, dig deep into your pockets, or we're going to pass the bucket around a couple of more times. Never, uh-uh. It's God's church. He knows what it needs to be taken care of. We pray. We do what God tells us to do. He takes care of us. It's that simple. And yet, so many churches make it so difficult because they want, they want to build out of their budget. They want to do more than God's given them. And they get in trouble. Now, God, we're in trouble. Yeah, well, I didn't tell you to do that. I didn't tell you to go out and spend all that money on that building. And I love what Pastor Xavier said. He said, never be sorry for what God has given you. He's giving us a little church. Wonderful. Thank you, Lord. I'll be just as accountable as the guy with the one ten thousand congregation. And vice versa. 
It's not how big the church is or, or how grand the ministries are. It's were you faithful to what God calls you to do? Very simple. See, God makes it simple. Man gets involved and he makes it so messed up. He makes it difficult for everybody. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not need. If, so again, great principle to live by. Okay, let's close with verse 20 through 23. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. God gets all the glory all the time because he deserves it. Then Paul, after, God, after Paul gives God the glory, Paul greets every believer personally. The believers who are with Paul also send their greetings. They now belong to Christ, and they want to be remembered by the Christians in Philippi. Then Paul closes with a blessing in verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Contentment comes from the right resources. Our resources are the providence of God, the power of God, and the promises of God. We rest on those. We depend upon those. The resources made Paul sufficient. The resources made Paul sufficient for every demand of life. And you know what? They can make us sufficient for every demand of life as well. We just need to trust in God's providence, in his power, and his promises. Father, we once again come to you, Lord, to thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness toward us, Lord. We thank you for all that you do for us, God. And we particularly thank you for the salvation that you have provided for us. Again, your son, Jesus Christ, hung on a cross, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you're, not, and if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we pray that the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart. And you recognize that God is more than just a religious, religious figure. He's a person who wants to live in our life. He's a person who takes care of us, who cares for us, and wants to do for us. And if you feel your need this morning, and it is a need, to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, repeat these words after me. It's a simple prayer of faith. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to walk in all of your ways. And thank you, Lord, for dying on a cross for me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you said that prayer, see Brother Mike standing back here in the corner. He's got a Bible for you is more than willing to give it to you and uh, just share some information with you. Tonight, we encourage you to come back as we continue our character studies.